Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these last years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about leadership and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. It's a privilege to welcome this week's guest, renowned historian and author John Barry. Over his distinguished career, he has studied how past generations have responded to massive disasters, like the flu pandemic of 1918 and the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. All of this research has given John a unique perspective on how we can balance the need for collective action and individual liberty in the modern era. Today, I'm excited to discuss how we can draw on the lessons of the past to persevere through the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my pleasure to introduce master historian John Barry. John, welcome. Uh, thanks, and flattered to be, to be on. You and I share an alma mater. We both graduated from Brown, although there wasn't any overlap in our time there. Why did you choose to attend Brown, and how did your experiences there shape your career path? Well, it was pretty simple. I, uh, I grew up in Providence, a few blocks from the football stadium. I always wanted to play on that field. Uh, I sat on, it turns out, I sat on the bench a lot on that field, didn't get on the field much. <laughs> so it was kind of an emotional connection. Uh, it, it was that simple. It's the only school I applied to. That's great. And then after you went on to attain your master's in history, you coached high school and college football. What lessons about leadership did you learn during that period as a coach? That's certainly an interesting question. I think that, uh, number one, you need to know what you're trying to accomplish. And be and number two, you need to be clear in communicating that. Uh, I think over time you need to, uh, people need to trust you. And, you know, in, in a short period of time, you can probably get by. You know, Lincoln's famous lines about you can fool all the people some of the time and so forth. Uh, so, I guess those are, those are uh, the three things. It was also during your coaching career that you began your writing career. And the first story you sold was about blocking assignments at the line of scrimmage. Had you always been interested in writing? And how did you develop your expertise in historical reflections? Well, all I ever wanted to do, really, was, was to be a writer. Uh, you know, I did go to grad school in history. I did do work beyond the master's. Didn't get quite to ABD before I dropped out of, out of grad school. Um, 
yeah, there, there are actually two things I considered doing when I was young. One was uh, science. I was never interested in being a clinician, but I was very interested in biomedical research. And, and the other was writing. I can actually I can remember a particular incident that uh, got me off biomedical research. I, it's kind of funny. Um, I was one of those kids who had a lab in his uh, room, you know, prepared my own media, you know, stained slides, had a, really, it's still have it. It's a beautiful, at the time it was made, a state-of-the-art microscope, although that was in the 1930s, so now it's a beautiful antique. And I was playing with E. coli, but the, the version that you get in school is pretty harmless. Uh, I thought that was boring. I was get 12 years old, so I wrote away, sent away to the lab for some staff, which they sent me. <laughs> and uh, I went away to camp and stored the remainder of it in the freezer. And a family friend was a physician, asked my parents when he came over for dinner what I was doing, and they said, oh, he's got this staff in the freezer. And the physician said, what? He threw it out. I came back from camp said, where's my staff? And uh, my parents said, well, Eric Denhoff said, you can't. Anyway, I was furious. So I gave up science and decided I was going to be just do writing. Well, but you've written brilliantly about science and your powerful writing resulted in both the Bush and Obama administrations relying on you as an advisor. What was it like moving from studying leadership historically to working with leaders hand in hand? Uh, uh, well, I will say you're asking me questions that I haven't been asked before. <laughs> uh, you know, I my first book was, I wrote about politics for almost 10 years um, in, in Washington as a, as a journalist. Um, my first book was about politics. I was in the room with Jim Wright, who was Speaker of the House, for he gave me unbelievable access. You know, I, I was pretty familiar with the process, and my wife worked for the Senate for 20 years, more than 20 years, uh, for Sam Irvin during Watergate, as a matter of fact. You know, I, I think I, you know, not that I had that much influence, but as an observer, I, I think I had a decent idea of how things work and how to make the levers move. Uh, I mean, it was basically fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was, you know, it, it's, 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 it's nice to, to be involved in something. Writer is pretty isolated. Um, and to actually work with other people on occasion, that, that was useful. Uh, it was also challenging, particularly you know, when I'm dealing with uh, the scientific community, um, intellectually challenging and interesting. Um, so for me personally, it was just basically enjoyable, uh, more so than, or different, I won't say more so because I love writing, but uh, different from sitting at my desk, you know, trying to type away, hunt and peck. I still hunt and peck on a computer or earlier a typewriter. 
That's great. So you don't you haven't moved to uh, to a word processor. You, you... oh yeah, I uh, yeah. Actually, my I still would like to use my original word processor, but it won't work in Windows. Okay. So it was. That's great. You've you've written about in March of 2020 when things were shutting down because of COVID and the rest. You live in New Orleans and the rest. Many of the restaurants, most of the restaurants and bars closed. But one day you saw a lone bagpiper uh, playing on the street. And, you know, for me on the morning of March 6th, that really early in the morning, I got a call from our chief medical officer that uh, we had a faculty member who was uh, infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2 and was being admitted to the hospital. There are these visceral moments when when everything becomes real. I, as you described for you, it was seeing the bagpiper with literally nothing going on and what would ordinarily that time of the year be a hustling and bustling part of the world, the, the French Quarter in New Orleans. Uh, and for me, it was the realization that what we've been reading about and, and, and seeing in other places was now very much at home with our people. How, how do these visceral moments shape leaders? Um, and, uh, and throughout history, as a historian, what other moments such as those have you seen and how have they served as inflection points for leaders? Well, let me just speak for myself. I, I can remember in 2009, I got an email from a, a scientist in San Diego, this is before anything was public, uh, saying that he had just identified uh, what looked like a new pandemic virus. At that point, I actually, we sort of just probably finished my involvement with the Bush administration and the same people, many of the same people were still in the Obama administration. I can remember feeling, you know, the, the stomach sinking, the emotions that everybody feels that, you know, that this was it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that turned out to be, I won't call it a non-event, but, you know, the mildest pandemic that we have any record of, uh, milder than ordinary seasonal influenza. I would say this time around, it was probably when they closed Wuhan. Uh, not not the bagpipe. Okay. I, and in fact, I wrote an op-ed that ran in January in the Washington Post that you know, said, I think we're in for it, basically. Uh, you know what? Hopefully, you've prepared for things. And those visceral moments, I think, make you decide, you know, this is it. This is when you turn things on. Now, in my case, there wasn't a lot I could do. Uh, You know, I could try to write op-eds to and do media things to try to influence behavior of individuals and and public officials. Uh, I think like everyone else in the public health community, you know, I got involved to the best of my ability in trying to influence things. Um, there was an effort organ that uh, your friend John Max is, was involved in uh, that was originally organized uh, by James Carville in terms of uh, messaging. 
I, I spent a lot of time on that, uh, particularly in the first few months. Uh, I guess uh, the real when reality sets in, that's when you need to get going. It's it's that simple. Well, hopefully, if you're a leader, you've do have preparations for you know crisis management. Uh, you're not shooting from the hip, and you execute the plan. Uh, and of course, the plan never works. You always have to, uh, you know, shift and adjust, adapt. You know, I guess the term is adaptive management. A lot of people talk about adaptive management, but actually doing the adapting is is a lot harder than talking about the term. So I guess, uh, you know, that's about it. You, it, it. It flips the switch, the visual moments. Uh, and then you go into action. Looking back at the great influence of 1918 compared to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, lots of things are different. Certainly our means of communication are radically different. In 1918, of course, there were newspapers, but the literacy rate was much lower. Uh, how do you compare the way leaders communicated then um, and the way we communicate now? Uh, and maybe in particular, what do you think the impact of social media has been, good and bad, in, in managing this pandemic? Well, certainly it's a net negative. I don't think there's any question about that. There were, in 1918, the political leadership in this country and in most cities uh, lied, just point blank lied. Uh, the motivation for it was not uh, personal self-interest, it was more general self-interest. They, they thought that any negative information uh, would damage the war effort. We were, of course, at war. This time around, it was more out of political self-interest. Uh, in 1918, what you the result was more of a chaos. This time around, people lied, and you ended up with two different belief systems almost. One in the, in a majority of people relying on public health advice from you know good public health advice, and a minority, but unfortunately, a significant minority that was firmly entrenched uh, in mythology, misinformation. That was obviously the result of not entirely social media by any stretch. Uh, you had people from the White House saying things. So when the President of the United States is saying it, you can't, it, it's not just social media. But the way they amp the social media can amplify uh, something false. It's not entirely new. I mean, we've had rumors throughout history. Uh, and there are actually some parallels from 1918 in an effort to, uh, to spur more energy into the war. For example, there was one public official, national public official, uh, who said Germans, germ warfare, influenza, trying to spread rumors that Germany had somehow sent it across the ocean in, in a submarine. Uh, so that's not entirely dissimilar from 
some of the misinformation that's been spread this time around. Um, you know, there's no way of quantifying or really studying what happened in 1918 or the days before social media. You know, as an historian, I do think we, uh, we tend to see the present perhaps as more different from the past than it really was because people obviously don't change. People are the same. What moves them are the same. Um, but at the same time, to, you know, obviously social media is just enormously influential. And I'm not on it, so I'm the <laughs> wrong person to comment on it. I've never tweeted in my life. I posted, a, and you know, I've, my publisher says get on Facebook. So as I've been on Facebook for 20 years, I doubt that I've posted 20 things on Facebook. In a recent op-ed, you wrote, in looking back at the great influence of 1918, and of course the waves uh, that occurred in 1918 and 19, and then we came to 1920, and people were tired. Uh, and we had another wave in 1920, which uh, was virtually ignored uh, and led to uh, led, led to a lot of casualties. Fast forward now to today, when we're uh, we're coming off of Omicron. I wish we had a better crystal ball, but none of us does. Uh, are we in danger of ha having something like that happen in the future? Yeah. Well, clearly, it's all it already yeah. has happened. You know, as I said a second ago, people are the same. Uh, if you look at almost every account of 1918 pandemic, they talk about three waves, including in my book. Uh, if you go to the CDC website, it talks about three waves, and it ends in 1919. And there was a massive study jointly by CDC and the University of Michigan History, uh, Center for the History of Medicine, which has great data online from 40... 50 cities in the country, and they cut off in 1919. But the reality is another variant occurred in 1920, and in some cities, including Detroit, Kansas City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis that I know of, it was the deadliest wave. Uh, but no, in 1918, virtually every city closed things down. A few did in 1919 for the third wave. Nobody did in 1920. Uh, because people were tired of it. So we were, you know, facing the same thing in Omicron. People are tired of in the, you know, that's why at one point we cracked a million cases a day. Uh, what comes next? You know, what the future variants are. Um, the fact that immunity, you know, immune protection wanes apparently over a period of months. So even if you don't really get new variants, you're the possibility of getting sick again is, is very real. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a real concern uh, for, for the, uh, not only the near term for future, but really medium term un, until we start, start getting large, uh, uh, you know, widespread availability of Paxlovid and some other uh, uh, therapeutics that are, look to be coming online in a relatively short time frame. Given that reality, how can we most effectively and accurately communicate the hope 
that the future represents with the realities and uncertainties of today. And I guess it gets to the broader question of how the scientific community communicates uncertainty. Uh, there's been so much uncertainty in this pandemic. And at times, I, I don't know that we in the scientific community have been that effective at communicating that uncertainty in a way that's that that's credible, uh, but that also offers hope. Right. Right. Well, uh, this time around, unfortunately, I think it's too late. I think the mistakes have locked people into their positions. You know that, and the fact that it, you know, the anti-vaxxers or the anti-maskers it's now become part of their identity it's not just in a you know an opinion about what to do it's really locked into their identity so it may well be too late i think you still can try um, however i think at the beginning of this event it could have been handled in a manner that allowed you flexibility if at the very beginning we had made it clear that we don't know what's going to happen and that you can expect the advice to change as we get more information, you know, that gives you the wiggle room to make adjustments. You create an infrastructure in which you allow for this variation. Uh, we didn't do that. You know, it, it was there was no sort of cohesive framework in which to fit these things, uh, and that was a serious mistake. And, and we're people are paying for it with their lives. I, I know in the uh, when I got involved in with the in the Bush administration, uh, with I, I was never part of actually writing a plan, but in terms of conceptualizing what to do. Uh, I was involved and, you know, met with assistant secretaries and the secretary and so forth. Uh, and I always pushed, you know, telling the truth. That was my number one message. And transparency is written into the very top of both the federal plan and every state plan. Uh, Executing the plan is always going to be the issue. Uh, and we didn't execute very well. And we didn't frame it well. It's a, it was a framing issue. And not all of that uh, is because of Trump, although Trump certainly didn't help. When the polio vaccine first became available, many people who had lived through Spanish influenza were still alive or they knew someone who had lived through it. And um, do you think that that had an impact on the relatively widespread adoption? Although there certainly were people who pushed back with the polio vaccine. But, but from what I've read, there was more of an embracing of what a wonderful opportunity this was to uh, either eradicate or dramatically reduce the incidence of polio, which was a disease at the time before the vaccination, almost everyone knew someone or had a relative uh, who had been af afflicted by, by polio. Uh, it seems like we had more embracing of that vaccination when it was rolled out uh, than we have today from the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. I'm just wondering if the memory of 
of the Spanish flu and its devastating effects perhaps drove some of that adoption early on of the polio vaccine that, of course, that memory by and large is gone today, at least for most people around today. I'm not sure that the memory in 1918 had any impact, but I do think there were considerable differences in the polio experience. Number one, you're talking about kids, not people in nursing homes who are the most vulnerable. Uh, and if you get one child, all of it, it seems like such a tragic event, as opposed to a 90-year-old person who, who dies. That's number one. Number two, I think there was a lot more I mean, science was really viewed as as miraculous at that time. It, and medicine was, was viewed as what it could do was miraculous. You know, it's even more miraculous today, but people seem to take it for granted. But the whole idea of antibiotics, we were in the great age of where we thought we were uh, finally uh, defeating infectious disease. Uh, and also, maybe certainly very important, maybe the most important, was trust in institutions was so much higher. Uh, I'm sure you and your, and your listeners are familiar with this study that came out quite recently, 177 governments, and the thing that was so important was trust both in institutions and in each other. And of course, you know, the, we're only a few years back then, only a few years out of World War II, uh, when we had been in it all together, and when the institutions of government and the military had done pretty well. We were building the interstate highway system. Uh, there were all sorts of things that, I mean, society itself was different. I think that was probably much more important than any memory of 1918. Those are really important points and, and great observations. How will COVID shape our response to climate change and how, you know, different crises or different challenges in that COVID is fairly immediate. In other words, it's, it's, we, we feel its effects, we see its effects every day, most of us anyway. Uh, climate change, we're starting to see the effects, uh, but of course it's much longer term. But are there parallels or lessons we can learn from COVID that we should be thinking about as we contemplate the challenges of climate change? I think there are problems that COVID has brought to the surface that we need to recognize how to deal with. And, uh, and that is the misinformation and so forth. Uh, we've already already had, you know, a history in climate change of self-interested companies and groups trying to deny the science. Uh, you know, I do believe in McLuhan's line: the medium is the message, and the message is everyday life. Uh, in terms of climate change, right now. Of course, the West is the greatest drought in a thousand years. Uh, in New Orleans, where I live, you know, we face hurricanes. 
more intense rains. Uh, as difficult it is to link and impossible to link any particular storm uh, to climate change. Nonetheless, recent history suggests that there is a link. And, uh, you know, the amount of deniers, I would hope, is declining. Uh, but again, you know, COVID just shows how dug in some people can be to a really bad position. Even, it, you know, we all have heard stories, and, and you may have had people in your hospital, someone about to be intubated says, no, I don't have COVID, you're lying to me. I mean, it's just beyond absurd uh, how people can fool themselves. And the, uh, so it, it, I don't know the solution, but COVID has certainly brought to light uh, communications problem that has to be solved and that we have not yet solved. Although the polls are moving in the right direction, but whether they'll move far enough to actually get government action, that's another question. Now, throughout the history of human behavior and certainly through pandemics, human behavior has been proven to be very, very hard to change. I, I once met a venture capitalist who said that he would never invest in a company that purported to have a product or a service uh, that was going to improve or change human behavior. What has worked in, in your observations as a historian in studying crises uh, resulting from human behavior, in part at least, um, what has worked in terms of long-lasting changes in behavior and getting people to buy into the need for changes in behavior? Well, usually a disaster. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the saying, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yep. I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty old saying, actually. I don't know who said it first. Uh, with something like climate change, with something like COVID, you know, I think we may have an opportunity. We certainly have an opportunity to do a much better job next time around. And there will be a next time. Uh, whether we will or not is another question. Uh, in terms of climate change, it's a time frame issue. Uh, if we really wait for the crisis, it's going to be too late. You know, if sea level rises, you know, one to two feet by 2050, a lot of areas of the United States that are pretty valuable property are going to be underwater. I mean, part of New York City's below sea level. Yep. New Orleans gets a lot of publicity for being below, so actually only about half of it, it's like 51% is above sea level. It's not entirely below sea level, so somewhat of a myth. But uh, it's certainly low-lying. Uh, you know, Tokyo, a lot of Tokyo's below sea level. So it is a serious worldwide problem. If we wait until 2050 to start to address it, my guess is it'll be too late. Uh, and people are trying right now 
without a lot of success and making the kind of changes that needed that need to be made we still have a lot of deniers out there what keeps you awake at night in 2022 well worrying about my next book i guess <laughs> <laughs> something pretty but you weren't asking about that well can you tell us about it <laughs> Well, I was actually working on a book on coastal Louisiana, which I put aside to uh, to write a book on uh, COVID. And <laughs> having problems with both of them, the uh, Louisiana's lost 2,000 square miles of land, basically melted into the ocean for a variety of reasons. And the book will go into uh, all those reasons, which actually starts 2,000 miles upriver. Uh, with dams on the Missouri River, which retain in total 100 million tons of sediment that used to come down here and build land. Uh, but the COVID book is, uh, you know, is a writer. I mean, you're drowning in a sea of information and trying to uh, carve that into a, a narrative that is readable is a problem. Uh, you know, too many characters. And as I said, you know, just an endless sea of information. Uh, so <laughs> that's what keeps me up at night. Okay. You know, okay. do I stay awake worrying about sea level rise? No. Okay. Uh, but would I buy more property in New Orleans? No. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. So what do you think that John Barry's and the future will say about this period? I think they will be uh, appalled, as many of us who are living through it are appalled. They, they will find it almost inconceivable that people could have done something as simple and harmless as put a mask on and instead not only risk their own lives, but other people's lives and, you know, go out and, and uh, demonstrate in the streets about it. it. You know, no one in public, I think everybody recognized that there was an anti-vaccine community out there. What made this really different and much more difficult was the linkage between that community, which was very well organized, and a political movement. That did not have to happen. That was not predictable. Uh, and we, you know, that, that merger of people like Robert Kennedy and, with his background and uh, alt-right, uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, living through it, it's unbelievable. And, uh, Future historians, I think, will find that equally difficult to understand. Well, in closing, what makes you optimistic about the future? <laughs> well, I'm generally a pretty pessimistic guy. I, <laughs> I always see, as, as a football coach, go back to where we started, 
You know, you're always looking for what can go wrong and trying to prepare for the worst case scenario. By the same token, I never entered a game without thinking that I was going to win it. Sometimes I got beat pretty badly. (laughs) (laughs) But I managed to convince myself that, you know, we can find a way. Uh, You know, obviously there are some good things that came out of this pandemic. Um, You know, incredible speed. of some of the scientific developments, interdisciplinary uh, work that uh, hopefully that kind of thing lasts, you know, much more interdisciplinary uh, work than I think it had ever occurred before. Uh, A lot of it, the vast majority of it probably was wasted, but that's true of almost any kind of research that uh, so I think, and we have the opportunity to learn so much from the experience that we've just gone through. So the possibility of real progress exists. Uh, the problem goes back to what your venture capitalist friend said, that he would never invest in anything that purported to change human behavior. So for some of the best things to actually lead to permanent change will require either great leadership, uh, which is possible, or a change in human behavior, which I'm with your friend on that. That's not going to change. I do believe that leadership matters. You know, that there are people in positions of, you know, of leverage that uh, can change a lot. You know, obviously you can, you need no better example of that than the 2016 election to see how different this world, this world, not just this country, would be uh, if Hillary Clinton had won had gotten the same number of votes, but in a few different states. Uh, Even to the extent of the news of the day of Ukraine, you know, she would have confronted Putin much more aggressively from the beginning. I, uh, I think even those, that news today would probably be different. Obviously the Supreme court would be radically different. Uh, What would have happened in the COVID response is hard to say. I think it certainly would have been more organized and you wouldn't have had the misinformation. Uh, So leadership matters. Doing things right matters. Uh, John, thank you very much for sharing your insights, um, your expertise, your wisdom. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with historian John Barry. Please check out my conversations with other groundbreaking and brilliant guests who share insights on the greatest challenges they have faced. Please send your questions by email to the Minor Consult at theminorconsult.com. 
and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.